0: Life changes constantly, and change can be hard. Sometimes you might question your decisions, relationships, even aspects of your faith. So it can really help to talk to someone and get a clearer perspective. And that's where I can help. I'm Anna Field a registered psychotherapist offering virtual and in-person counseling in Peterborough. Let me help you rediscover hope and find peace. Visit AnnaFieldCounseling.com and watch for it to become Smint Counseling because, well, life changes. The
1: kitchen has often been described as the most important room in your house. It serves as the center of your family's day-to-day living. At Woodcrafters Custom Woodworking in Brecon, they're dedicated to producing the highest quality cabinet doors, Available in many wood species and profiles like raised panels and MDF substitutes, with their CNC router, each order is measured and sanded to precision. Whether you're a kitchen manufacturer or a capable DIYer, Woodcrafters Custom
0: Woodworking makes sure you get a perfect cabinet door every time you order. When we're preparing clients to deal with the media, we would say, well, here's a 13-word sentence which encapsulates our key message. Memorize it and say it over and over again. We've realized that that isn't actually what works. What works is you take the important point you're trying to get across and you wrap it in a story. You have a much better chance of your audience retaining it. This is Culture at a
1: Crossroads with David Mann. All right, joining me on the show, we have award-winning writer Terry Fallis. Thanks for making the time.
0: Thanks for having me, David. Happy to be here.
1: From the outset, we should uh, just know this because I think your humor is going to uh, sprinkle into this interview. Uh, Can you describe it? Like, what are you satire, sarcasm,
0: wet, dry? I think David, I, I cover the waterfront. Uh, I, I blame my father. My father was a very funny guy when, when he was alive, and uh, he also had a love of language and proper use of, of English. Uh, so uh, I think my sense of humor was developed you know just as a kid, growing up in a family that was where humor was a daily uh, fact of life plus I have an identical twin brother. So when you have an identical twin brother growing up w- attached at the hip to him almost, uh, there's often that sense of competition but be- between the two of us. And that... That actually came into play when we were trying to make our dad laugh and just trying to be funny. Uh, so I think I was pushed in, in many different ways uh, in my humor. But but I do I love wordplay. I do love satire. Uh, I love that we can use humor as a vehicle for educating and even mobilizing people. Now and then, it gives humor gives us a different entry point to examining issues that you might not have considered before you can almost get to the reader by stealth if you're if you're writing a a story and there's some humor in it uh, they may not even realize that they're thinking about an issue that uh, they haven't thought about before
1: mm, interesting
0: do you think humor opens us up more I do. Uh I think it does open us up more and and there's not enough of it in literature frankly. Uh and I think you know I I may have discovered why I th- I think it's kind of hard to make people laugh just with words on a on a white page. Uh you know if you're a filmmaker or even uh uh, a podcaster where you can use the intonation in your voice or, or other effects to get your humor across. Certainly if you're in television and, and movies, you've, got the visual aspect of it that is often just as funny as the words coming out of the actor's mouth. But when you're limited to a, a blank page and little black markings on it, and having to make those words make the reader laugh, it's, I think it's a little more challenging. I'm not sure I appreciated that. I'm glad I didn't understand that when I started, but... Uh, uh, I think it is possible to make people laugh through through words on a page. And I'd, I'd love to see uh, more people doing it.
1: Talk to me about your entry into writing novels. Uh, this is around 2008. Why did you decide to launch into this?
0: The early part of my career was spent on Parliament Hill in Ottawa and at Queen's Park in Toronto, uh, working in the back rooms, as it were, for cabinet ministers and uh, on their political staff, and it certainly gave me a view on politics and the state of politics, and I was not that happy with the state of politics and i don 't mean that in a partisan way; I just thought all of our the parties were getting much too personal and partisan and weren 't focused enough on on policy. It was all about politics and power uh, so i I wrote a novel satirizing that idea and trying to get Canadians to think a little more deeply about how important politics is and our obligations as citizens. And I, I cloaked that idea in the guise of this character, an accidental member of parliament uh, named Angus McClintock. He was a uh, a mechanical engineering professor from Scotland with a heavy Scottish uh, brogue accent. I was just trying to drop the least likely character you can imagine onto the floor of the House of Commons and to see what unfolded because he did not want to be elected. He sort of was running as the sacrificial liberal lamb in the safest conservative seat in the land. <laughs> and the election didn't quite unfold as he had anticipated. So I had a lot of fun with it. And that's a, a long-winded answer. But uh, uh, I, I was trying to, I, I do think of it as satire rather than just humor. Because I my goal was to try and get people to think about their obligations as, as citizens and the need for them to take passing interest in public affairs and to put their mark on the democracy by voting in an informed way. And that hasn't been happening as often now as it, as it was in the, you know the years of Lester Pearson or John Diefenbaker, where 80% of eligible voters would cast a ballot. We're now, you know, we're lucky if we get 50%. Uh, so it's uh it it's troubling and that was what was prompting me to write about that in a what i thought would be a funny novel
1: yeah especially considering uh where you came from how important and, and common would you say it is that there are factual uh citations going into fiction novels like what you've put together
0: well i i i do like my novels to be rooted in a realistic uh premise uh so I, I'm not trying to create something completely out of whole cloth. I'm trying to set it in a familiar, in familiar context, in a way, and uh, and make readers understand that you know this isn't science fiction. I'm writing about the generally, I'm writing about the here and now, uh, and you know, adding some facts to that, whether it's you know the the precise rules of order that govern proceedings in the house of commons i mean everything that happens in my in my first two novels about about politics could actually unfold in real life so i wanted there to be that plausibility to it or the writerly term we sometimes use is verisimilitude <laughs> which is a word i practice before coming on the show here david <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, it's sort of a, a a writerly word that not too many people use or know what it means, but that it it means that even though you're writing fiction, it should approach truth as well.
1: And what sort of response would you say you've gotten from your readers to the the books that you've pumped out over this last decade and a bit?
0: Oh, it's it's been the most gratifying experience uh, of my life. I mean that 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 first novel. Uh, I, I was so blessed because, I mean, lots of writers have a more prolonged... Uh, and traumatic entry into the publishing world, mine was uh, was a little more. I don't have four other manuscripts gathering dust in my in my bottom drawer here that 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 didn't make it. This was the first thing I'd ever tried uh, of any length, and I couldn't find a publisher for it initially because I'd written a satirical novel of Canadian politics, uh, not perhaps what the publishing sector was looking for at the time. But I, I self published it. And then I podcast it and gave it away for free to try and build an audience for it. Uh, and then w- what really changed my life as a writer was when that self-published novel won the 2008 Stephen Leacock Medal for Humor. Uh, and I mean, it's rare that established literary awards even accept self-published works. It was probably an oversight on the Leacock Committee's part, but uh, there was no such restriction, and I I submitted it, and uh, miraculously, when all was said and done, it, it won, and that's what changed my life as a writer. That novel uh, immediately became something it wasn't before that, and I signed with a literary agent uh, two days after being shortlisted for the Leacock medal and three days after winning we signed with McClellan and Stewart where I've been for all eight of my novels and a ninth finished and coming out in in August uh it went on to be a six-part television miniseries and a stage musical and it won Canada Reads so that is the novel that that keeps on giving and it will always outsell all of my other novels I think just because of uh those early accolades for which I am eternally grateful and continually shocked
1: they're just forever sequels right they can never live up to the to the first movie
0: yeah it's tough. When when it wins Canada Reads, it's almost impossible for any of your other books to sell as many as the one that wins Canada Reads, because the reality of that particular prize is that it sells more books in this country than anything else, except for the Giller Prize. So uh, it's unlikely that without that kind of... Uh, validation from a big award like that that my other novels will will ever sell as well as it has so i'm i really feel blessed that that happened on my first my first novel
1: have you always been someone that that learns in a way when things are a bit more open-ended like a like a fiction novel sort of uh the way that information is contrived it's not so black and white you can sort of make the decision you want once you have all the facts or the the stories
0: yeah i I think that's true uh, i mean i I've said before that I, I think fiction is a great way to tell the truth uh, because sometimes in in the real in the factual world uh, reading a newspaper sometimes the the issue that is central to that particular story might be clouded by other extraneous issues. And it may be more difficult for us to see what's really at play in this, in this news story right here. And I think if you're interested in, in writing in a way where you're advocating a position, which I have on, on more than one occasion in my novels, Fiction allows you to create a perfect scenario that isolates an issue and allows the reader more ready access to it. Uh, and uh, I think we don't always have that luxury in the real world. So the question is whether or not the reader can make that transition from believing something in fiction and taking that into their daily lives and deciding to act upon uh, a new understanding of an issue and their particular place on that issue's spectrum. Where where are they on that issue? Uh, so yeah, I, I I think you're right. Mm. Oh,
1: it'd be really interesting to track that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the facts are 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 one thing, but sometimes you need you need a story to help mobilize someone to take an interest and maybe to start acting in that interest uh in in their own lives
1: let's talk about the art of storytelling which is so important for someone like yourself and and really lots of professions i mean you would have done this in your in your public affairs and and you would have got a real taste of this in in your politics uh how have you refined this ability uh what does that process entailed
0: well, it's a good question because I think I was simply coming to writing as an avid reader. So I would read th- the stories that I enjoyed uh, were real stories. They had real characters and they had an arc and things happened in in the novels. I was learning and I was engaged and I was rooting for uh, one or more of the characters I was railing against some of the characters who were not so, so nice and virtuous. Uh, so I, I just found that, that storytelling is, is a really effective way of getting your point across. And it's, it's probably the most ancient art we have. I mean, before we had language, we had storytelling, we had cave paintings that were depicting the hunt before there were actual words and and languages to convey those stories. They were told through, through those cave paintings. So it's something that is almost embedded in our DNA, and many neuroscientists think that's true. And what neuroscientists have discovered, quite recently in fact, in the last decade or so, is that when we process information and take it in and store it for future access, we don't catalogue it as fact or statistic or key message, we catalogue it and store it as a story. So as a communications professional for my entire uh, career outside of my life in politics, we always talked about how important the key message was to getting our point across. And when we were preparing clients to deal with the media, we would say, well, here's a 13-word sentence which encapsulates our key message. Memorize it and say it over and over again. Uh, And it would have some statistics in it and some hard numbers and, We've realized that that isn't actually what works. What works is you take the important point you're trying to get across and you wrap it in a story, preferably a true story. uh, And you tell that story, you have a much better chance of your audience retaining it. It has a deeper penetration into our, our consciousness and we retain it for longer and we have better able to gain access to it again in our head, in our memory uh, in, in the future. So that that's the power of storytelling. Uh, and one might argue that if you were a big fan of say uh, the public policy of the guaranteed annual income, it may be a better route to bring people on board to write a novel <laughs> where that somehow finds its way into the novel. And we see the effect that it has on the characters' lives. And that may be a way of, of getting us to think about important public policy issues like that one, for instance.
1: Well put. I think even uh, some of my audience and, and beyond, I mean, there's stories in the Bible that, that, that transcend to all audiences. You think of the parable of the Good Samaritan or David and Goliath. I mean, these are just, they're just there.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, the Bible is chock full of powerful stories that have a very clear intention behind them. Uh, so the Bible is a great example of effective storytelling. Uh, I would say, particularly the uh, well, I don't know whether it's New Testament or Old Testament. Maybe they're maybe they're both the same. I'm I'm not. Uh, much of an expert on it, but, uh, I remember some of the parables and parables were more than just good stories. They were intended to have an impact on us and to, in a way, guide us in, in our behavior. Uh, and they do a great job of that. I think.
1: What's the biggest mistake that you see young writers making when
0: it comes to storytelling? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I I think it it might be. Uh, sometimes writers are trying to latch on to what is the the latest craze in in literature in in fiction or in books in general. There was a time you may recall, David, when uh, vampire novels swept. The, the literary uh, landscape, uh, and you know you had Anne Rice writing about interviews with the vampire. Uh, we had uh, what's her name Myers, who wrote the Twilight uh, series of books, which were extraordinarily popular. And uh, and given how difficult it is to make a living as a writer, I think some aspiring writers might be forgiven for saying to themselves, well vampires are hot, I'm going to write a novel about vampires. Uh, Without having any personal connection or interest in the story, they're doing it purely for, in a way, for commercial purposes. And if you don't have a connection to what you're writing about, it's probably not going to be a very good book. Uh, I think choosing what you write about and doing something where you have a personal stake in it, maybe you have some experience in it, maybe you have a strong belief in in a certain topic that you want to write about, Uh, or you are like me, uh, you hail from the write-what-you-know school of writing, so you can write more easily with authority and conviction and perhaps most importantly of all, authenticity. Uh, So I think writers sometimes worry too much about what they should write about um, because they, they're not sure that they have anything important to say. They should plumb the depths of their own experiences, their own beliefs, their own principles, I think, and come up with a story that allows them not so much in an autobiographical way, but just through the experiences they've had, convey a story that grabs the reader because they're writing from a position of of knowledge and experience.
1: Terry, before the interview started, you uh, enlightened me on the the picture behind you. Uh, People won't see this listening, but uh, it's a map of France back in the 1920s amid some of the great writers to uh, ever be on this earth. And, You just love that era. I'm curious, how important is it for you as a writer to have the aesthetics and the aura around you to be able to really tap into that creative realm when it comes to pumping out books?
0: That's a really good question, David, and I do find myself gravitating to those, you know, to touchstones that make me feel more like a writer. Uh, inspiration is something that writers occasionally even often have in short supply, uh, and writers need inspiration to... uh to keep them going and to keep them motivated. And I'm I'm fascinated by the writers of Paris in the 1920s. So I have this map of 1928 Paris on the wall here, and I can look at the same streets that I now walk through today when I visit Paris, which I do every couple of years. They're still all there. The cafes where Hemingway and Fitzgerald wrote are still all there, almost unchanged, uh, that's the, the beauty of Paris. It's like a, a, a time capsule. It's a time machine, in a way. Uh, so I can go back and I can sit in a t- at a table in a spot in the cafe where Hemingway sat. And in my fourth novel, I actually wrote a scene from that novel set in the very cafe I was, I was seated in. Uh, and that allows me to write, I think, more directly, in a way, and in, in, in a more grounded way. Uh, so I like those things, man. I, I have an, an old typewriter sitting on a bookshelf across from me that is in my in my eyesight, uh, a nineteen fifteen Underwood typewriter. It doesn't work; it's totally seized, but I don't need it to work. I just need to look at it, and it, it you know it, it it helps motivate me. I've got a framed photo of Robertson Davies on the wall, who was one of my favorite authors, and he kind of presides over what goes on in this room, (laughs) hanging on the wall there. And so all of those things, they just make me feel more like a writer. And because I came to it late in life, I was 45 when I wrote my first novel, I feel like I'm trying to make up for lost time now that I've discovered what I think I may have been meant or supposed to be doing for longer than I have been doing it.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. Well, just to give uh, listeners a taste of, of your humor on the page, I chuckled when I read this. Uh, You're describing Daniel at the beginning of the book of Operation Angus as he meets with this uh, lady uh, late at night. And he describes, I pegged her as late 50s or early 60s, though I'm not gifted at estimating women's ages and have the scars to prove it.
0: (laughs) I just thought, well. Haven't we all been there? (laughs) (laughs) So relatable. (laughs) yeah exactly oh that that 's a good that 's a good word to use uh that 's something that writing if you want to sell books uh, they really do need to be relatable you need the reader to pick it up and to if not see themselves in the story see worlds that they that they know a little bit or can connect to uh so yeah books need to be it's it's probably easier to write a book that is not relatable <laughs> it's tougher to make it relatable but when you do it uh you're bringing readers into your fold as it were
1: mm, yeah i think uh, a lot of sacred texts when they bring up stories too it's it's really trying to conjure empathy for the reader in the same way
0: that's exactly right yep
1: well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Terry. I appreciate you uh, dialoguing with me and, and sharing your gift to us in Canada and beyond. Uh, make sure to pick up a copy of Operation Angus and uh, also look forward to a new season coming out this summer. Thank you so
0: much. David, thanks for having me. It was good to be with you. And if you want to find out more
1: information on Terry Fallis, you can check out his site, terryfollis.com. He's got a weekly newsletter and I've also highlighted things on the show notes at davidmanmedia.com Really neat to delve into the art of writing and storytelling with Terry and I can't help but think of the master storyteller that Jesus was. I mean, there was nobody better at having you leaned in understanding these characters they were so relatable you could imagine yourself here and they're so powerful that they always had a purpose attached to them. They were always shared for a reason. And in our case, it's ultimately to better understand the heart of God. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. Well, we are coming up on the one year anniversary of Russia's attack on Ukraine. Jim Payton is a seminary professor for McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, and he's an expert on the Eastern Orthodox tradition. We're going to dig into the last 1,000 years of history between Ukraine, Russia, Kiev, Rus'. And we're going to understand what the identity of these countries means from the past for this present moment. We do thank you for listening to Culture at a Crossroads and a reminder to join us next week as we once again explore the intersection between faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus.